this episode. One of the Inside EMS podcast is being sponsored by Boundtree Medical. Learn how Boundtree can help you save minutes and lives at Boundtree.com. You know, I think we've done a really good job over the past few weeks of bringing in the experts to kind of talk about their areas that they're having to prepare for. You know, we had a provider come in, talked about, you know, his, his experience with COVID. And uh, we had an ER nurse come in and, you know, a trauma nurse specialist come in to kind of talk about how the hospitals are getting ready and, and EMS administrators. Now we're going to go right to the source and talk to an EMS medical director. And I'm sure you know who it is by reading the show notes. Our good friend, Dr. Peter Antevi, one of the foremost EMS medical directors in the United States. Dr. Antebi, I want to thank you for joining us on the Inside EMS podcast. Hey, Chris, great to be here with you again. And, uh, you know, it's always awesome to talk to you, Pete, because, you know, I I learn so much and, you know, just kind of your approach to how you take care of your folks and, you know, medical direction on your side. And I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to visit, you know, so when we think about this from uh, uh, preparing your organization and you are very, very hands-on when it comes to ensuring that your providers in in all the organizations that you work with are prepared. And and I'm just going to ask, you know, how did you go about, you know, getting everybody ready? I know that uh, being in South Florida, your peak is really about the third week in April and and this is kind of your ramp up time. And what was your preparation like? Well, Chris, I appreciate that. I mean, I am very fortunate to work with really high-performing people uh, from the EMS leadership, uh, even extending, uh, quite frankly, into the city leadership with commissioners, city managers, and they really all have faith in what we're doing. And I I will say that early on, um, I went back and looked at the earliest emails that we were sending back and forth as COVID was coming in, and it was in January where... We, we knew this was coming. We started ordering equipment. We started re-evaluating our, our PPE policies, reminding people how to do it, going station to station, sending out videos. Um, and it was so early that people were really like, are they really doing this now? And it came to the point where we, you know, allowed our folks to kind of get into the rhythm early enough. And we pulled the trigger on uh, the PPE having people going fully geared up, Tyvek suits, um, the, the P100s we, we had been using for quite a while. People thought we were crazy uh, early on. And some of the other departments around us um, really were looking at us thinking, are, are they really doing that? And I can tell you one of, the most, uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, Chris, is that when I look at all of the folks in the agencies that I work with, we've only had one positive on the EMS side, and that's just something that makes me feel good because I don't know about you, but going out in the real world, being on the front line, treating people who are sick, coughing in your face, having diarrhea, and then you want to come home to your family and you have a newborn at home or an eight-month-old at home, that's very scary. And um, I don't want that to happen to any of the, the EMS professionals that I work with. And so we started really early on this, and I think that was the key. Well, certainly uh, knowing you, uh, Pete, you're you're very very conscientious. You you have great foresight. You have awesome conceptualization. But as a medical director, and, and you know, worrying about and you kind of just talked about it, not wanting to bring this disease home. You know, as a medical director, what's keeping you up at night? You know what? You you hit it right on the head when you when you talk to people and you talk to them about what issues they're most worried about. 
and you speak to the EMS professionals out there, that's number one on the list. I mean, imagine having to go home and then your spouse or your loved one says to you, um, do you really have to come home and, and sleep here tonight? And it's causing a lot, of, a lot of stress. And so clearly that's the number one thing on people's mind. And so what I've done is we have put into, into place a policy. This is very early on where we've never done this before, but we now have on every PUI, so um, a person who, come, who calls our dispatch center, we, we call it a P36 because it's protocol 36 in MPDS. We now have my lieutenant or my battalion call, the, call that patient by phone and evaluate them, do a, a, a quick little history. Um, well, you even have them check their temperature if, if they can do that. And we've had people check their blood sugar for us. Then we actually have them walk outside. We stay 10 feet away and we'll evaluate them from there. And now we're even looking at a video, uh, a video process. We're actually looking at Pulsara, uh, who's offered their, their product for free for us to do that. So then I can even be looped in. And I've asked my, my, uh, my paramedics to call me on each of those calls if they have any questions. But if we're going to leave somebody home, I wanted to be kind of very involved in how many people we're seeing, why are they calling us, and it's really, it's really worked. And we're keeping the numbers of people who are exposing my medics low. At the same time, we're making sure that our citizens are safe. And um, knock on wood, we have very few people who have been exposed because of a lack of PPE. And uh, I think the patients and the citizens are very happy with what we're doing. And at the same time, Chris, what we're doing on the, on, from, from the city's end, I do a Facebook Live every Friday. I'm sorry, that, that's another Facebook Live. I do one every Monday uh, with the uh, people from Coral Springs. And then we basically update them as to what's going on. We do a webinar with all the assisted living facilities every Friday to be sure that they're doing the right things. And we really push them in a direction that they've never been pushed before. And uh, working very closely with the Department of Health. And so you can see that what keeps me up at night uh, what keeps me up at night is a lot of different things, but it's really connecting all the dots and being sure that when I do finally go to sleep uh, very late at night sometimes, that I know that everyone is protected from the citizens to my medics to the hospital personnel, and then to make sure that all the data that we're gathering uh, is able to inform us of the next decision that we're going to make. So a lot of moving pieces, a lot of people involved, lots of phone calls, but really it's something that is really... Uh, panning out to be something very, uh, very positive. Well, it does sound like you're being very conscientious. And from the clinical side, you know, we start to think about this virus and we hear, you know, almost like there's eight different sets of people who are getting symptoms, right? I mean, from the very, very worst intubated ventilators, ICU, really kind of hanging on, um, you know, kind of on the, on the end of their life. Or the other end is low-grade fever, you know, cough, um, maybe some uh, GI issues, and then everything in between. Are there any special clinical practices or protocols that you've had to put in place, you know, besides, I think, the, uh, you know, the triage and, you know, getting people to the hospital? But, uh, I mean, as far as clinical practice, how are you addressing that with your folks? Yeah, so, Chris, that's an excellent question because the types of strategies we're using now on the medical side are completely different. And in the 20 years of medicine uh, that I've been in, 
all the dogma is for this particular virus is it's gone out the window. So let me let me explain what I mean by that. And you, you already alluded to it with different types of patients, but but it turns out that the one major difference we're seeing in these patients is that what we're calling them is that they're happy, they're happy hypoxemics. And what I mean by that is the people are coming in with stats below 80% and the pulse oximeter looks like, you know, something that we, 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 would, we would, you know, right away pull for the ET tube and, and, and want to innovate them. But it turns out that that's the wrong thing to do in this particular case. And the reason why they're hypoxemic is very interesting. What we're, what we're thinking is happening now is that the virus itself is affecting the hemoglobin molecule and it's stripping the iron from the middle of the hemoglobin molecule. So you have all this hemoglobin running around in the blood that does not have oxygen associated with it. Um, so you're, you're effectively having a low pulse ox, but at the same time, they are getting enough oxygenation to their tissues so they're not hypoxic. So the word hypoxemic is what you're what you're measuring on the on the SpO2. But hypoxic meaning that they're that they're the, the tissues are actually still okay and they're not they're not upset at you. So their brain is still functioning. They're talking to you. They don't have end organ failure. Their lactate is not low. But um, those patients should not be intubated. And so when you talk to the leading ED and ICU doctors from across the country, they're saying now that rather than going right to intubation, they're starting with conventional nasal cannula, then they're going to a, a standard venti mask of 50 to 60%, then a non-rebreather, then high flow nasal cannula at 100% FiO2, then going to CPAP trial, um, and then after that, if, 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 going to intubation, and what's very interesting with the intubation aspects of things is that um, we're starting with a PEEP of 5, but we're maxing out our PEEP at 8 to 10, maybe 12. And the tidal volumes, which you, we used to say were 6 to 8, we're now moving up to 8 to 10 because these people, most of them don't have bad lungs. They're not an ARDS. And so imagine you're giving bigger tidal volumes. You're not giving as high of a peak because you don't want to uh, cause injury to the lung by the pressure that you're pushing into the into the lung, and then you're allowing hypoxemia. So you're allowing these people to be on a vent at settings you've never used before with uh, uh, an SpO2 that's lower than you would ever have allowed, and so uh, and then you're rotating these people, you're proning them, you're turning them different ways, you're giving them Lasix. So this is goes against everything we've ever done. We're giving very ju judicious uh, um, saline boluses. So we don't, we're giving them fluids, but not a lot of fluids, if you will. Um, we're testing things we've never tested before, like ferritin and D-dimer and so forth. Um, and so from a clinical point of view, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast today and you're in, in EMS, you're a HEMS person, you're in the hospital, ED, ICU, Everything that you've done before, you really have to reevaluate with this virus and you have to look at the pathophysiology of the virus to really understand why this is happening. This is, this is almost like HIV back in the 80s. No one ever knew it. They didn't know how it worked. And this is exactly kind of the same way. And five years from now, we'll be looking back and we'll, saying, and we'll, and we'll be saying, we wish we would have known more 
uh, at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That's the first time that I've heard this concept uh, where you talk about, you know, hypoxemia and, and uh, how we're changing the paradigm of how we're doing our job. And I think I, I got to think that the biggest challenge is getting these paramedics out of the mindset of low SpO2, um, you know, low pulse ox, you know, difficulty breathing. Let me knock them down. Let me intubate them. And now we're really having to almost kind of wait it out and use the the BLS before ALS methods of treating these folks. And uh, I find it very, very interesting. But uh, let me go ahead and take a quick break here, Pete. I want to talk about Boundary. And when we come back, I want to ask you the question of, uh, you know, what's been your biggest aha moment as, you, you know, things that you've learned throughout this pandemic. But, you know, as your partner in EMS for over 40 years, Boundary has made it their goal to provide you with more than emergency medical supplies and equipment. Boundtree partners with you to create efficiencies within your agency, streamline your operations, and help you find ways to make the most out of your budget. Your dedicated account manager will be your true partner, acting as your personal advisor to help you determine which solutions are right for you and your specific needs. Find out more or set up a new account. Visit Boundtree.com or call 800-533-0523. So, you know, we were kind of talking, Pete, about, um, you know, how you're moving this forward and how you're kind of helping the, the agency and, you know, difference in clinical practice and in, ensuring that they're going to be safe. But I'm sure there, ha I'm asking everybody this question. I'm sure there's a time where you had to sit back and, and just have that aha moment to say, because we don't know what we don't know yet. I mean, you may, you know, before the break there, you talked about five years from now, we're going to wish we'd known well, there are things that are hitting you now where you're saying, I didn't even think of that. What, what, can you share that with us? Yeah, there is. There, I can tell you, I'll tell you a little funny story is that, you know, I've been on Twitter for 10 years and um, I've loved the kind of the Twitter family that I've, I've, I've created. And then, uh, and I've, I've learned, I learned, I've learned from, and I'm trying to learn about this virus. I'm trying to uncover what's, what, what's never been uncovered before. And what I've what I've recognized in, in the field of medicine is that there are, there are two types of people I've learned. There are those types of people who it's got to be in the textbook, it's got to be written in the New England Journal, um, and if not, they're just gonna not believe it. And then there are the other people who are really on the cutting edge, front lines, trying different things. And so the other day on Twitter, you know, this whole big theory about hydroxychloroquine and there's a lot of political uh, ongoings behind it, but it turns out that this hemoglobinopathy, which essentially is what the virus is causing, is probably more important than what it's doing to the lung. And so the other day when I put up on Twitter that we're looking at hydroxychloroquine as, per, as potentially even a prophylaxis, and what I didn't explain is that we are looking at, at it as something that would um, help the red blood cell not lose its iron and get stripped of the of, of the of the iron component and boy i got i got blasted on twitter i mean i got basically like a mac truck hit me and so what i what i've come to recognize i think is that this particular virus needs people to stay open-minded it needs people to continue to ask questions that they've never would have asked before um and you had just mentioned earlier uh, just a minute ago that Imagine a paramedic being told they have to do things very differently. Well, one of my very uh, close friends, uh, Micah Stryker, another EMS medical director and ED doc, was he had someone in his ER prone, right, so facing down, 
and uh, this guy was sick, but Mike was doing all the things that we, we kind of know to do now, and he didn't intubate, and his own ICU physician came downstairs and was like, what the heck is going on over here? We don't do this here. And so I think that you need to develop the mindset of openness. You have to develop the mindset of being a learner, like we should be all the time anyway. And most importantly, I think you have to be collaborative. And so my big aha moment was uh, about four weeks ago, I was sitting, we started these webinars and I said, you know what? I said, guys, what if we start a WhatsApp group? And next thing you know, I got a couple of yeses, some more yeses. Today, we have four different WhatsApp channels. We have several hundred people kind of distributed throughout those channels. And we are able to move on a dime and we're able to create a Dropbox now that I'm willing to share with anybody. And it has assets from uh, many different departments. It talks about PPE, different policies, return to work protocols. Uh, we're doing the antibody testing now. So instead of recreating the wheel, we're now allowing this collaboration to happen. Everything is remote, so webinars, WhatsApp, uh, phone calls, just the collaboration that has to happen um, is probably the biggest aha moment that we've ever had. And I can tell you um, from a um, kind of just a professional standpoint, this collaboration has been the best that I've ever experienced in the field of medicine for my entire career. And I think that it's something that uh, many people uh, should, should, should do if they haven't done it already. And it sounds like an incredible practice. But again, I think that this goes towards the, you know, the, the foresight of really trying to tackle something that we don't have, you know, the knowledge about. I mean, we're, we're stepping into an area now that there's no playbook and we're almost having to write the playbook every day. And what was working yesterday is not going to work today, is not going to work tomorrow. And if we don't stay dynamic, if we don't stay fluid we're really going to be behind this thing more than getting in front of it. So I applaud you with the concept of saying we've got to throw the rule book out and we've got to be able to do what's right. You know, maybe you find out down the road that it wasn't the right thing to do, but it was right for right now. And I think a lot of people are missing that bus from saying, you know, that's not what we do. That's not how we do things here. Well, you know what? In this environment, maybe it has to be. Well, I'll tell you, you know what, you're exactly right. And I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a quick, a quick, very fast story. When I was an intern in LA Children's back in 1999, I had this little kid, he was, I had some diarrhea and then he had, he started having a lot of diarrhea and I came up as the intern and I evaluated this kid and I said to the mom, you know, this looks like standard diarrhea. And then she looks at me and she says, is my son going to die like the last one did? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, well, my other son started exactly the same way. He ended up having massive diarrhea and he died and no one ever figured out what the problem was. And I said, how many years ago was that? And she said, about four years ago. So I went down to medical records. I opened this kid's chart and it was like stacks and stacks. We didn't have electronic records back then. It was all kind of in stacks. And I looked at this whole kid's chart and I said, this kid has something that's never been diagnosed before. And uh, my patient started deteriorating, deteriorating. And finally, I found one article uh, that was done in an animal. It was, I think it was done in some lab mice. And they, and they described it as called Syndrome X. And the only treatment for this Syndrome X was steroids. Now, we've never given steroids to anyone with diarrhea ever in the, in the past. But this kid now was almost going to be in the ICU. And I, I went to my attending and I said, listen, 
Um, is it okay if we give this a try? So we looked at the paper, we, we discussed it. The, uh, on the same day we gave the steroids, Chris, everything stopped. Everything stopped. And so he was the first person that we had ever diagnosed with the syndrome X, um, you know, that, that at least that we had on record. And now this kid is still alive today. And I think that, you know, I still want people to think like you're at the beginning of medicine, like you've never been in the field for 20 years or some people 30 years or 40 years. We have to keep an open mind and all the people out there who are looking for the journal article that's a randomized controlled, double blinded, you're not going to find it here. But I'm not saying to throw away the, the, the medicine and say, don't do a trial. Uh, we have to follow the science, but we also have to have a little bit of outside the box thinking. And at the same time, not treating people like guinea pigs, which I know is a big concern. So um, it is a different time. It's a difficult time. I think it takes a different kind of leadership here. And I would hope that everyone out there um, with their policies and their protocols, the way they speak to people, the way that they deal with people at the hospital, I really think that you really have to change uh, your, your, your perception on things and keep an open mind as we move forward and try to solve this, uh, this puzzle. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I think that you're really on track and you're doing amazing work. And again, every time you come and visit, uh, it, it really is, uh, you know, educational for everybody. And I think that you've given us just in this show a lot of great uh, tips, a lot of great things to think about. And uh, I think that that's what makes you one of the foremost medical directors in the United States. And, you know, just, you know, Pete, from the side of your educational knowledge of wanting to make sure that we're all on the same page and we're doing the best we can, I would like you to give the listeners your just final thought on this. And, you know, what does this look like uh, in the future? How does it change EMS or any other words of wisdom that you could really just inspire these folks that are out there? And, you know, they're feeling the frustration. They're feeling the fear. You know, they're worried about uh, bringing disease home to their family. What do you give them as a final thought? Well, listen, I think that um, you're, you hit it right on the head. I think that all the people who are out there on the front lines, when I go to sleep at night and I know that uh, the people that I work with are risking their own lives and risking their families' lives, uh, I can tell you I have a number of physician friends who are ill. I have a um, very close EMS colleague who's on a ventilator. And I, you know, I really say thank you. Um, you're really doing the hardest job ever at the time where we need it most. And so what I, what I would say to people who are listening, who are maybe, um, who know someone in EMS or you are someone in EMS, um, I would say show, show support, right? So call someone and tell them, thank you. Uh, call, call the local fire, uh, fire department and say, Hey, I want to do something nice. I want to, I want to, I want to give the folks breakfast uh, or lunch or dinner. Um, when you see someone out there, uh, thank them for the hard work that they're doing, just like you, you see uh, in, in New York every night that they're doing. And, um, you know, I think that when we when we look back at this in a couple of years from now, I want to be sure that we haven't lost anyone because we weren't ahead of it, because we weren't thinking about it. And um, speak to your leaders. Tell them, tell them you know, what, what your concerns are. I do think that in my crystal ball, Chris, what I think is coming is – we're going to need to figure out ways to keep everyone kind of mentally strong. This is not going to go away tomorrow or by the summer. And so I think we all have to look at our, our emotional status. Uh, we haven't seen our friends in a long time. 
Uh, you may not be able to go to church or, or synagogue in a long time. And so I think that everyone's a little bit off kilter. So try to somehow balance yourself uh, with religion, with friendships, uh, and with work as well. And um, I think we'll all make it through it together. And I always say to people, my phone is always open if they want to call me and talk to me. But let's kind of go through this as a family and help each other out because when this finally goes away, that's who we'll have to lean on again. And so uh, thank you for what you're doing, for getting the word out. You've always, you've been a rock. You guys, you and Kelly have been doing this for, I don't know how many years, but it just seems like you were one of the first podcasts out there. And I really thank you for what you're doing. Oh, it was truly our pleasure. I mean, anytime that I could just listen to my voice uh, every week, I'm excited about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day. You know, Dr. Peter Antevi, you're always uh, welcome on the Inside EMS podcast because we always come out smarter on the end. Everybody out there, I mean, you know, think about these words of wisdom. I mean, we think about it from a clinical practice. We think about it from a medical practice. How are we going to uh, handle this business? And, you know, a lot of people think we're coming to the end. And uh, there are some states that are not haven't even started yet. So we've got to be able to make certain that we're listening to these words of wisdom and we're taking this uh, and we're taking this advice from the people who are joining us and really kind of making our processes better. I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. For Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalero. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com and we'll look forward to talking to everyone again next week.